Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Adam O'Neill, Executive Editor of the Dispatch. On the show today, we have Bonnie Glazer. Bonnie is Managing Director of the German Marshall Fund's Indo-Pacific Program. She also is a co-author of a new book, U.S.-Taiwan Relations, Will China's Challenge Lead to a Crisis, out recently from Brookings Press. She's been thinking about the Asia-Pacific and U.S. policy for decades, and she brought plenty of insight into today's conversation about Taiwan. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Um, you're the co-author of a new book on U.S.-Taiwan relations. So maybe I'll start with my colleague Jonah Goldberg's favorite question. What's your book about? Well, the book is about U.S.-Taiwan relations, and it tries to provide a history of the U.S.-Taiwan relationship and then examines how that relationship has evolved, particularly on the question of uh, the China factor uh, and how Taiwan and the United States have uh, have managed their uh, the tensions that have arisen uh, from China, and uh, that's uh, in fact the chapter that that I wrote, and it examines this eight year period uh, under the Trump and Biden administrations in the United States, and then in Taiwan, the, that period has been the uh, the uh, time when uh, Tsai Ing Wen has been in power. She, of course, is still president and will uh, wrap up her eight-year term in in May of uh, next year. And then the final chapter, which uh, Ryan Haas uh, wrote, is about scenarios of possible development of U.S.-Taiwan relations going forward, um, pertaining to, again, the China factor, and then has some discussion of uh, policy recommendations going forward for how to preserve stability in uh, in the Taiwan Strait and strengthen U.S.-Taiwan relations going forward. We, we've seen a lot of uh, aggressive Chinese behavior in and around the Taiwan Strait in recent weeks and months. Co- you know, uh, naval vessels coming very close during freedom of navigation operations or what have you, different, different examples um, entering Taiwan's air, air identification zone, that sort of thing. Are we living in a particularly dangerous time in the region, or is this sort of just been the status quo for 60, 70 years now? Well, it hasn't been the status quo for 60 or 70 years because China's military capability 60 or 70 years ago was very, very limited. Uh, it was really uh, limited to protecting uh, China's uh, own coastline. And it's only really been in the last 10 years that China has developed capabilities to uh, use force against Taiwan, uh, but even more importantly, China's developed capabilities that could be used against um, U.S. military assets or uh, other foreign military assets, uh, Navy ships and aircraft uh, that uh, could be um, operating in uh, in the area around the Taiwan Strait or the South China Sea in a crisis. Um, we call them anti-access area denial capabilities. Uh, and, and they would put at risk uh, our carriers, for example, uh, if they were operating close to China's shores. And China now has very large numbers of very highly uh, capable uh, missiles that can and can accurately target, uh, you know, precision guided missiles. They 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 can 
they're very accurate and they can hit targets as uh, far away as as Guam and 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 potentially moving uh, ships like aircraft carriers. So that's really transformed uh, the military balance. I mean, as as recently as maybe 15 years ago. Taiwan still had air superiority. It had more advanced uh, fighter aircraft than China had. That is absolutely not true today. So uh, they, the the military balance has changed fundamentally between China and Taiwan, and and the capabilities, uh, it, both quantity and and quality of of China's military um, uh, w- compared with the United States, which of course you can't just compare aircraft to aircraft. The problem is that the geography is so different. The United States is would have to bring in military forces from very, very far away. It's it only has so much that's uh, located, for example, at our at our bases in Japan. So we would have to flow forces also from uh, from Hawaii. Um, so, you know, China has has really developed enormous capabilities. And and so that is part of the equation now when we think about um, how to potentially protect Taiwan if a future president chooses to protect Taiwan against a Chinese attack. What's the logic of the PLA Navy conducting these dangerous maneuvers coming very close to an American ship? Um, risking possibly accidentally ramming into it what why why do this when uh, the u.s navy is sailing through the taiwan strait well the particular uh episode that you're referring to which took place on june 3rd is unprecedented we have seen chinese aircraft operate very close uh, to u.s aircraft in very unprofessional maneuvers um, and also canadian australian aircraft there was one incident last year where the a PLA aircraft was uh, trying to communicate to an Australian aircraft uh, to leave the area, and after it didn't respond to its communications, released chaff, you know, like little bits of aluminum uh, in, that went into one of the engines of the Australian aircraft. That was a particularly dangerous episode. So it's not just against the United States, but in the Taiwan Strait, the June 3rd um, episode really was unusual because the U.S. Navy ships sail through the Taiwan Straits approximately once every month um, and usually uh, do so uh, in a way that is, um, uh, they stay on the, on the, there's a sort of invisible media line in the strait, and the U.S. Op- usually operates on the Taiwan side. So I don't think that there was anything unusual about what the U.S. Uh, destroyer was doing, but the, the, the Chinese I have talked to actually claim that the U.S. ship was um, behaving erratically, slowing down, speeding up, changing direction, uh, Whatever it was doing, it was operating on what we call the high seas. This is, you know, international waters. It's not the uh, 12 nautical mile territorial sea space, um, which um, we still, according to the law of the sea, have a right to pass through as long as we're conducting what's known as innocent passage. But the U.S. ship wasn't operating there. But, you know, in response to your question, I think it it is... um, From my perspective, what's going on is that uh, the Chinese believe that if they act in aggressive ways and they introduce more risk, that the United States will become more cautious. Maybe we will 
operate in more cautious ways, maybe farther away from China's coastline, uh, maybe conduct fewer of these freedom of navigation operations. Ultimately, their goal is to push the U.S. military out of the region. They don't want us to have military bases in countries like Japan or Korea. They don't want us operating in uh, the Taiwan Straits or in the South China Sea. So the Biden administration has tried to revive the dialogue between the two militaries to talk about how to avoid accidents. And the Chinese so far are just not interested. And I think part of the reason is that introducing risks serves their interest. Before you alluded to, if a U.S. president were to decide to deploy American forces in the event of an invasion, and a little background on this is that the Chinese consider Taiwan part of China. It's a breakaway province. I think that is the language that's typically used. Uh, the U.S. acknowledges but doesn't necessarily accept this principle, the one China principle. And uh, the Chinese have always reserved the right to unify the island by force. Um, what do you make of Joe Biden's approach uh, to the question of whether the U.S. would defend China, which, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to be fairly consistently Biden will say in an interview We'll deploy, uh, you know, we will use, we will we will get involved. We will intervene if China tries to change the status quo by force. And then the next day, the White House says we'll walk that back and say, no, the policy actually hasn't changed, which in a way is its own form of ambiguity. But long way of saying, what do you make of the uh, the Biden administration's approach to the Taiwan question? I think we could spend a whole hour on the Biden administration's approach, uh, but I'll try to be concise. I think that uh, President Biden uh, was actually in the Senate at the time of uh, the creation of the Taiwan Relations Act, which is the legislation that Congress passed after the United States broke diplomatic ties with uh, Taiwan. So January 1979, the U.S. established diplomatic ties with the People's Republic of China. We had had a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan, which obligated us to come to Taiwan's defense. And the Congress really did want to put something else in place. And the uh, Taiwan Relations Act, known as the TRA, um, is the law that, uh, that we continue to abide by. It does not obligate the United States to defend Taiwan. It leaves that decision up to Congress um, and the president. But it does mandate that the United States has to sell uh, weapons to Taiwan, defensive weapons, and that the United States has to maintain a capability to prevent uh, China from intimidating um, and coercing uh, Taiwan. So we're supposed to maintain a robust military capability in the Western Pacific. And uh, uh, there are other features of the Taiwan Relations Act, but, th- but that's the part that's, um, that's most relevant to your question. And uh, President uh, Biden um, has said on four occasions that uh, he would defend Taiwan if it were attacked. So that language is not in the Taiwan Relations Act. And we can only speculate as to why he has said that. But I believe that in 1979, um, there were many uh, members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee who understood the Taiwan Relations Act as basically the way that we would continue to defend Taiwan, even as we broke diplomatic ties with it. So in his mind, I think he views the TRA as an obligation to defend Taiwan. And I think he's also worried about 
um, the growing hawkishness from Republicans on China, and he doesn't want to be seen as soft on China. So he, his instinct is to come out and say, I will defend Taiwan uh, if it is uh, attacked. I think he also believes that there is a need to signal Xi Jinping that he will defend uh, Taiwan because he doesn't want China's leader to miscalculate and think that the United States would sit back if China used force. So I think there's a lot of different things going on, um, but the White House has made clear that, yes, uh, the, uh, the president really is not changing U.S. policy. And if you were to ask President Biden directly, um, are you changing U.S. policy? I think he'd say no, because what he has said very explicitly is that we have a longstanding commitment to defend Taiwan. That's actually not the case, but that's what he believes. I was a foreign correspondent for several years before I took this current job. And one sort of consistent theme that I would notice when talking to Americans about some of the countries I was covering is they would try to understand that country's behavior through an American lens. So, for example, people would say to me, why would Putin invade Ukraine? But Putin obviously is operating from a different sort of calculation than a Western leader or someone in Germany or France might. And that same problem can often happen with I think that same problem is amplified when you're dealing with China, right? Which is a, the way that Xi Jinping, the way he came up in the world, you know, growing up in the cultural revolution, being a princeling in, in China and now rising through the ranks of the communist party. He doesn't look at the world the same way that Lincoln or Joe Biden might. What, what does Xi Jinping want out of Taiwan and what would make him calculate whether an invasion is worth it or not? And, I know it's impossible to know, you know, particularly in an authoritarian and closed off regime like his exactly what he's thinking. But what are some ways to think about based on the publicly available information, the way that the Chinese Communist Party thinks about this problem and how they measure the cost benefit analysis here? Well, Xi Jinping's cost benefit calculus is a very important part of this question. But first, let me say that uh, the, uh, the Chinese Communist Party frames this issue uh, against the background of what the Chinese call the century of national humiliation. So from the time of the Opium Wars in the middle of the 19th century to the 20th century, when in 1949 the People's Republic was established, but really extended uh, past that uh, because this is the period that um, uh, China felt it was its its territory was being nibbled away at by uh, by foreigners. Although China, of course, was never colonized like uh, some other countries in Asia, uh, but they believed that this was a period where foreigners dictated uh, to them, and they were forced to accept these unequal treaties, and that Taiwan ultimately um, was uh, was uh, allowed to uh, to not was prevented from being in integrated um, into China by the United States. So, you know, it, when the People's Republic came into being, there, there of course, it, it was preceded by a civil war between the Chinese Communist Party and the Nationalist Party that was led by Chiang Kai-shek. And uh, Chiang Kai-shek was defeated. So from the view of the communists, um, they won that war. Uh, but Chiang Kai-shek, receded to uh, to Taiwan. He set up his government there. 
And the United States at one point was um, uh, soon after the end of that war in the early 50s, uh, was willing to allow China to uh, eventually take Taiwan. Um, but then the Korean War happened. Uh, uh, the United States then uh, uh, introduced the Seventh Fleet um, into the Taiwan Strait. And, and, and then we ended up in 1954 having a mutual defense uh, treaty with Taiwan. And so the United States has had a stake in in, uh, in the future of, of Taiwan and seeing it not become communist, as we thought about then in the 1950s. Taiwan wasn't a democracy. <laughs> it was authoritarian. It, over time, became a very vibrant democracy. I lived there in 1979, 1980. Taiwan was under martial law. It was not a democracy. Uh, but it's changed very fundamentally today. So um, my view is that... Um, that uh, this is something that the Chinese have as a holdover from history. It's this piece of, of their history, the only piece of their territory that they say remains um, not integrated uh, into the People's Republic of China. Although one could wonder whether in the future the Chinese might decide to reassert their claim over the Ryukyu Islands, which are part of Japan. We recently heard Xi Jinping talk about Okinawa. Um, some people say maybe the Chinese would try to reclaim uh, or reassert a claim over Mongolia. Um, I don't know if that could uh, happen eventually, but certainly Taiwan is seen as, um, as this very important piece that is necessary to achieve national rejuvenation. And so the question is, how urgent is it for Xi Jinping? Is it a legacy issue for Xi Jinping? He has stated that reunification is a requirement for national rejuvenation, and he has set a target date of 2049 for national rejuvenation. Xi Jinping will be 96 that year. Um, my guess is he will not be ruling China. So maybe he wants to achieve progress toward reunification during his time uh, in in power. Uh, I don't think that actually achieving reunification is a legacy issue for him, but there are others who do hold that view. Uh, but I think that if Xi Jinping believes that trying to achieve reunification could end up undermining his the ability of China to actually achieve national re rejuvenation, um, that he'll think twice about it. If he thinks that the PLA would be defeated and potentially that could lead to the loss of the legitimacy of the rule of, of the Chinese Communist Party, well, he's going to think more than twice. And so that's where we get into this question of what's the cost-benefit calculus. Um, the benefits are clear, um, but the risks um, are great. We want to make sure Every day, Xi Jinping wakes up and says, today is not the day because the risks, the costs are too high. You know, we, we've talked about, and I take the blame for this because I asked the questions, but we talked about the U.S. perspective, whether America would fight. We talked about whether Xi would, Xi would send his, his soldiers and his ships to fight. But what about Taiwan? Um, there's a great journal article, a Wall Street Journal article a couple of days ago. I think the headline was something like Ukraine or Hong Kong. What are the what do you guys prefer is like the calculation, which might be a, a little bit of an oversimplification, oversimplification. But we sometimes forget that the Taiwanese will also have a say and perhaps they'll decide that, you know, it's not worth 
having the, the, the country flattened and trying to defend itself from, from China, or maybe not. What, what are your views on whether Taiwan is both ready or willing to fight if it, if it comes to that? Well, I think that uh, many people in Taiwan, including the government, may not see the threat quite as urgently as uh, the United States government and, um, and our intelligence community does. That said, there is certainly a growing urgency in, in Taiwan. Uh, there is a, uh, a growing concern about uh, whether or not uh, Taiwan can even hold out before a, a suf- sufficient U.S. force could arrive. And uh, Taiwan, even if it can defend itself uh, for weeks, probably could not hold out much longer. Uh, for the U.S., we want Taiwan to be able to hold out as long as possible. But even more importantly, if Taiwan demonstrates the determination to defend itself, hopefully it can deter that attack from ever taking place. So it is essential uh, for Taiwan to demonstrate a will to fight. And that means procuring the right, the right kind of weapons. It means engaging in serious training. It means ensuring that its reserves are ready to fight. It means developing a civil defense that is then integrated um, with uh, other parts of, of their defense uh, planning. Um, there are many different aspects of uh, ways to demonstrate the will to fight and to actually prepare um, uh, to execute their plans uh, if, in fact, the Chinese were to attack. And Taiwan has a lot of work. Um, their defense spending for many years was going down. We've had this consistent uh, 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 statement by uh, Taiwanese leaders, both the current president and the prior president, that defense spending should be 3% of GDP. And uh, Taiwan went down as low as 1.9%, which was really low. And now they're back up to 24 but nowhere near uh, 3%. That's only, of course, one measure of uh, willingness to fight and, and, and readiness. Uh, it's also the kind of weapons that they procure, uh, whether or not uh, they're they're uh, acquiring a what we call asymmetric weapons. Um, we used to have a, a, an official in the Defense Department who used to say Taiwan should procure a large number of small things and a small number of large things. So if we're talking about things like fighter jets, you know, okay, small numbers. They definitely need to have advanced aircraft to be able to intercept. PLA aircraft that are operating, as you said earlier, in the air defense identification zone, or um, maybe even in the territorial airspace. Um, in peacetime, they still have to be able to defend uh, their uh, their territory. But at the same time, you don't want to be spending uh, half of your defense budget, you know, on advanced fighter aircraft because odds are, in the early hours of a war, if one should take place, that. Air, air um, capability is probably not going to survive. Uh, so they really need uh, to think through that. And I think we're seeing them uh, uh, procure more things like Stingers and HIMARS, which are being used very effectively in Ukraine. But we're also seeing the Russians develop counter capabilities uh, to some of these systems. So this is going to be challenging for Taiwan going forward. But I'll, you know, I'll just make the point also that Ukraine has made a huge difference for Taiwan's attitude toward um, the potential threat that they see from China. 
they, I think the military and a lot of the average public is watching what's going on in Ukraine. At the beginning of the war, it was aired on television and on, you know, uh, news shows every night. And, and people really, I think it, it drove home the message, you know, wow, you know, war can happen when you least expect it, even when it seems to be against the interests of this perpetrator country, Russia. So um, I think, yeah, it has been a wake-up call for Taiwan. And on the on Ukraine, uh, there's a pretty common debate. I don't think it's ever going to be settled. But one question is, uh, are we using all of our good stuff like to, <laughs> to make it really simple? Are we sending all of our stuff to Ukraine when we should be keeping it for Taiwan? I'm curious on on your views. Can can the U.S. Uh, help out both of those countries at the same time? Or is there a, a real trade off that uh, maybe the Biden administration has underestimated? That's a good question. My view is that we do have to set uh, our priority based on the war that's happening today. Uh, it would be a profoundly negative, uh, very consequential outcome if uh, Ukraine is actually defeated uh, by Russia or if there is a negotiated solution that is against uh, Ukraine's interest. Uh, so my view is that we do have to focus on that more. In fact, even the representative uh, from Taiwan to the United States has underscored the importance of, of winning the war. I believe she has said, uh, 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 Representative Bikam Xiao, in Ukraine, um, that the implications for Taiwan would be exceptionally negative if Ukraine is defeated. Um, uh, so, I mean, that said, we don't have the luxury of focusing 100% on Ukraine, nor are we. And it is very important that presidential drawdown authority is now being used for Taiwan. If not for that war in Ukraine, nobody would have even come up with the idea of using PDA for Taiwan. Uh, but we have now begun, and this is, of course, means whatever is in the U.S. inventory can be sent directly uh, to Taiwan. This has been used uh, for Ukraine uh, for just billions of dollars of uh, equipment. And yes, some of the things that we're giving to Ukraine would be useful for Taiwan. But maybe we have to think smarter about how to produce large quantities of munitions um, for Taiwan. Uh, maybe they should be produced um, in Taiwan. Maybe we should be thinking more about co-production of uh, our defense industry with Taiwan in order to build up large stockpiles. Because one of the really important lessons to be learned from Ukraine, which is obvious, is that we've been able to resupply Ukraine over friendly borders from countries like Poland. Um, and we're not going to be able to do that if there's a war in the Taiwan Strait. The Chinese will impose a blockade um, and they're going to have to have energy um, and food and weapon supplies. They are not going to be able to rely as the Ukrainians have on uh, getting assistance from the outside. One question I wanted to ask about is the diplomatic fight. You know, this is a military question. It's a political one, but it's also a diplomatic one. Um, and the Chinese have become famous for what they call wolf warrior diplomacy. Although sometimes I read that it, they're, they're pulling back on that. And sometimes I read that they're not. Uh, and but Chinese diplomats are particularly aggressive. Um, you know, I know I think it was the Chinese ambassador to Cuba for some reason was tweeting at you. 
and you're a very prominent person, but it, it seems a little strange for uh, you know the Cuban uh, ambassador to be attacking you online. You know, you'd think he'd be busy installing a sty, uh, figuring out how to install another spy installation. And and then you have Wang Yi, the high-ranking foreign affairs official, who made a frankly racist comment that the Japanese and South Koreans will never be Westerners because of the color of their skin and the shape of their nose. And I mean, I grew up next to people from Hong Kong. They were my next door neighbors. They were pretty much American and Western, despite not looking like my family. Um, but do you think that Chinese diplomacy is a help or a hindrance the way that they've been conducting it the past few years? This sort of aggressive approach. I think that um, the Chinese would rather be feared than loved. Uh, so I, in some places, it has had the impact that the Chinese want. And in other places, it's been counterproductive. Um, the Chinese combine uh, this aggressive talk or wolf warrior diplomacy with economic coercion, for example, other tools that they can use to try and influence other countries' policies. And uh, in some cases, I think they have seen some effect, but then there are countries where it's really backfired. Uh, it certainly backfired in Australia, um, where we've seen a real change in policy in Korea after the elections there. Um, and I don't think it's helped them in many countries um, in, in Europe. But uh, actually, China's diplomacy has been very welcomed by many developing countries in the global south that want to see China and Russia stand up to the United States. And, and it, this is also true of countries in the Middle East that don't particularly like the United States these days. So um, you really have to ask about what the target country is. It, it lands differently um, in, different, in different countries, and it, it has worked in, in some places. Um, but when it comes to Taiwan, what I really worry about is disinformation. Um, China's uh, development of its narrative there, its use of propaganda, um, and its disinformation about how the United States would not defend Taiwan. And in fact, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine, the Chinese immediately started spreading this narrative in Taiwan that, oh, the United States didn't put boots on the ground in Ukraine, so don't think they're going to come and rescue you. And uh, so I, this is what I really worry about, because I see that this messaging um, from China actually is having an impact. Um, in Taiwan. Um, and if we want to see Taiwan be more resilient, we need to see more bipartisanship, you know, less, um, uh, less of, a, of a divide between uh, the political parties. But uh, similar to what we see in our own country in the United States, um, there's really um, uh, significant differences between the political parties in, in Taiwan, and China exploits those differences. What, one one last question here. Um, I uh, I don't speak Mandarin. You know, I've read a few books about China uh, from people who do speak Mandarin, and they seem to know quite a bit. Uh, you do. How how does, especially in, like I said before, just such a completely different world, and in many ways a different value system, a way of perceiving the world. How does speaking Mandarin and being able to go to primary sources or listen to official speeches um, in the in the uh, in the original tongue? How does that influence your way of thinking about these issues, and uh, how does it inform your analysis? And could you do what you do if you didn't speak Mandarin? Maybe. Well, I think I would first say that 
I have known experts um, who do not speak Mandarin, who are really excellent uh, experts in assessments of uh, of China. So there are exceptions, um, but uh, I still think that they're handicapped, uh, that they have to rely on other people to interpret for them um, what uh, a specific passage in a speech um, might mean. Uh, four character expressions that the Chinese use, um, you really have to understand uh, what they mean. And even reading them literally may not help you. So if you're not American and you don't speak English and somebody says to you, um, oh, but this person said um, that President Trump was willing to throw Taiwan under the bus um, and, and you literally said, oh, my God, he was willing to what? Destroy Taiwan? Well, obviously, that's not what Trump was trying to do, because that's just um, just a phrase. Right. You know, you wouldn't if you were a, a, a native English speaker, you wouldn't take that seriously. And there are some examples in Chinese where people take things very literally that I think are not really meant literally. They mean something different in Chinese. Or when Xi Jinping talks about struggle, um, what does it mean, um, struggle? And so you have to, I think, if you put it in the in the context of the of the primary source, you understand Mandarin. You you can compare it. You can look at how struggle is used in other contexts. The Chinese are told to struggle for everything, not just to struggle to. Uh, take back Taiwan. Struggle has become a very common uh, call of Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. I do think it matters. Um, and so I would say that if you're trying to understand um, China and you don't speak the language, that you do need to rely on others who do to help you interpret different different parts of uh, what is said or what is published um, in the Chinese media. You're never going to be able to do it completely on your own. And so if you understand that you miss that piece, you have to build the capability um, or access the capability to have somebody else inform you. But you can still be a very good analyst. Thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Adam. 